the 130th Psalm, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Psalm 130. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we could sing your word tonight. Uh, May we be encouraged by your word. May our youth uh, find this a very profitable week for them. And we thank you for allowing us to, uh, to have Discipleship Week. And we're also grateful for being together in your, in your house tonight. And so, Lord, give us ears to, uh, to hear and to be warmed by uh, the instruction from your word and to help us to obey it for Christ's sake. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what we've been doing over the past um, few Sunday nights when, when, I'm, uh, when I'm preaching on Sunday nights is I want to go back into Psalms. Uh, if some of you were here uh, a while ago when we went through the Psalms, we, we took about eight years and, and spent a hundred, I went through 150 Psalms. Uh, and so it was a really rewarding time. And there's so much about the Psalms. The Psalms are the place to go to for the human experience. If you want to understand uh, the, the wide range of human emotions, go to the Psalms. And so what I elected to do, and I'll continue to do this as, as the Lord allows, and when I'm preaching on Sunday nights, is we're going to stay in the Psalms. And these aren't regurgitated sermons from the past. Uh, I wanted to look at the Psalms afresh, and not, and not in any organized way, but in a random way to identify human experience because this is something we all go through as Christians. The Psalms are a great place to uh, identify not only the human experience universally, but also the Christian experience. And Psalm 130 is, is a very relevant psalm, a very relevant psalm. It's, a, it's labeled a song of ascents. You probably have that in your Bible. It's uh, the sixth of seven uh, penitential psalms. A penitential psalm is a psalm of lament, of sorrow, of grief. It's often associated with a heavy awareness of sin that weighs upon the, psal- on the psalmist. It also could be an indication of, uh, of just sorrow and lamenting out of that. Lamentations, though not in the psalms, it is an example of a lament. There are other six psalms, and if I mention the numbers, which I will here, you will notice that they have a high uh, emphasis on the awareness of sin. There is Psalm 6, there's Psalm 32, 38, 51, the 102nd Psalm, and the 143rd. Now, but what we see in these psalms of lament, and in particular tonight, Psalm 130, if you look at verse 3 and 4, the psalmist is, is really struggling with a sense of forgiveness, a felt sense of forgiveness. Now, authorship has been attributed to David and his sin of Bathsheba. Some scholars believe it may be uh, his persecution by Saul 
It could be in Hezekiah. So there's multiple avenues. We have no historic setting of this psalm. Uh, So really, you can't be dogmatic about that. But what we do know is that the psalmist is longing for a felt sense of forgiveness. He wants to know that experientially that he's forgiven. Now, he knows he is. And that's why verse 3 and 4 are so important because verse 3 and 4 provide for us, which laments do, is that there's a ray of hope in the darkest of times. And that's just so true in our lives too. It can be so dark and you think that there is no light whatsoever. But if you look close enough, there's always a ray. There's always the little, a brightness coming uh, from the Lord. And in verse 3 it says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If he stopped right there, then this would be a lament without any hope whatsoever. But yet he says, But with you there is forgiveness. That you may be feared. That would be a sermon in itself to understand that forgiveness is designed to produce a fear of the Lord in us that propels holiness that we would sin less, not be sinless, but sin less as a result of knowing His forgiveness. Well, as we read this psalm in the very first verse, out of the depths, you can't help but think of Jonah. Uh, when you read this, for what did Jonah do? Jonah cried out of the depths of the, of the fish's belly. And the psalmist is indeed doing that. He is crying out of the depths of his pain. He is crying out of the depths of awareness of his sin. But yet with the awareness of his sin is that he knows justification by faith is real. He just wants the, the peace of God that comes with peace with God. And that's how the psalm would unfold. And what he does in the intense language of the psalm is he takes us to one of the chief schools that God puts all of his children in in order to teach us valuable lessons. And that is found in verse 5 and verse 6. And that will be our focus uh, in the, the time we have tonight. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning more than watchmen for the morning. You'll notice the repeated phrases and the repeated words in these two psalms. And what that, those verses, I should say, is what this does, it shows the intensity of the psalm, the intensity of the psalmist and his yearning for this sense of forgiveness. And what he knows that in this sense of forgiveness, it only comes from God. It isn't just a feeling, just to have a generic feeling. He knows that forgiveness, as is revealed in verse 4, it comes from the Lord. Now, I want to extend this application to all of you, to include myself, that there are many times that God puts you in the school of waiting. He will call, he will call you to wait upon Him. Whether it be for a sense of forgiveness, whether it be for His peace, whatever, whether it be for direction decision-making, so forth. God will often put his children in the school of waiting. And I want to offer to you four, and you have an outline to follow, offer to you four. These are not new things for you. uh, But I want to encourage you with these repeated lessons that we need to be reminded of when we're in the school of waiting. The first thing that we see then, the psalmist says in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord. In verse 5 and verse 6, it starts out with the direction of his waiting. And what does he do in his waiting? He has an intensified desire for God. He has an intensified desire for God. 
Spurgeon once said that the Lord's people have always been a waiting people. Now, what does it mean to wait upon the Lord? That is not a, a, a state of passivity where you just sit around on the floor and sing kumbaya and wait for the Lord to do something. That's, that's not what biblical waiting is. Biblical waiting is aggressive. It's aggressive. It's aggressive in the, in the soul. It's a, as he says here, my soul waits. Remember uh, Mary in the Magnificent? She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. So she would, out of the very depths of her being, she was worshiping. Well, the psalmist, out of the very depths of his being, he's waiting. And he's not waiting just on God to do something. Though he longs for his uh, sense of forgiveness, he's waiting for the Lord himself. He says, I wait not for what the Lord will do, I wait for the Lord Himself. And the definition of waiting means to tarry, is to look with expectation, even an earnestness, a diligence upon the object that we want, or I should say that we are waiting upon. Now, if you were to do a study of waiting in the Bible, in particular the Psalms, you're going to find that it appears in 22 separate Psalms. Waiting appears a lot throughout the Psalter, and in 23 different verses, you'll find that the psalmist is exhorting himself to wait upon the Lord. If you go uh, back uh, a few psalms to 25, you'll see an example of this, Psalm 25. Oftentimes, waiting uh, can seem to be impatient. But if you'll study the waitings of the psalmist, you'll find that there is oftentimes not an impatience. There is a willingness to wait. Psalm 25, verse 3, Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. This is all language of relationship. This is all language of teachability. This is all language of the potter and the clay. And then look at the end of verse 5. For you... For you, parallel that with Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. For you, O Lord, I wait. And notice what he says, all the day long. There's not this sense of impatience that he's demanding of the Lord. It's not like Martha and Mary, where Martha is just so busy, and she looks at Jesus and said, Don't you care? Don't you care that Mary is not serving me? Command her to get up and help me. There was an impatience there. The psalmist is not impatient in waiting upon God. He has a keen awareness that he is the potter and that he is, and that he is the clay and thus he will wait. Now as you go back to Psalm 130 and verses 5 and 6, as I mentioned, the first point about waiting and why God will put us in the school of waiting, is he wants to intensify our desire for him. He will test our, our sincerity. He will test whether or not we truly want him. Look at Abraham and the testings that he went through. You cannot go far into the Bible and not find that God tests his people, and he will test a true faith. And the primary area that he wants to test you and me, he wants to test is, do you really love me? And do you really want me? And do you want me more for who I am or, who the, or the gifts that I give to you? And so the psalmist then is crying out, I want you. I am waiting on you. Now, this has also the intensity of what we would read in Psalm 63. In Psalm 63, verse 1, uh, you probably memorized this verse. 
The psalmist says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. The psalmist in Psalm 63 is like the psalmist in Psalm 130. He is lacking something. He is lacking. He's been removed out of the place of worship. He's been moved out of Zion. He's been moved out of Jerusalem. He's in the wilderness of Judea. And he's not in the place of corporate worship. And he yearns for this. He yearns for God. He yearns. Even to the point he says that my soul thirsts for you. Psalm 130. My soul waits for you. So when you look at this waiting upon God that we're called to do. It is a whole being waiting. It encompasses our, 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 the core of who we are. And oftentimes, my waiting on the Lord is a very short duration. As I find myself grumbling or perhaps even complaining or just being impatient because he's not answering what I want or he's not moving like I want him to do in the timing that I want him to do. And you're like that as well. And so what we see then is the intensity. Now, in Psalm 63, verse 1, this is a very interesting verse. The ESV reads, O God, you are my God earnestly. I love the King James in Psalm 63.1. The King James says, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek you. Well, the translation earnestly, that does fit. But by the word early, we have the sense of the dawn. We have the sense of the morning. Spurgeon commenting on Psalm 63.1, early will I seek you. He says the word early has not only the sense of early in the morning, but that of eagerness and immediateness. He truly longs for God and he longs for him now. And this is the intensity of Psalm 130. He wants his God. And Psalm 63, he says, earnestly, early I will seek you. My priority is you. I'm not going to push that into later into the day because the intensity of my desire for you is such that I need to have you now. When, um, when I was deployed in the Navy, and um, you know, some the, the worst time of deployments, I, I've told you this before, but I want to use this as illustration of intensity. The worst time is when your, your wife is taking you to the pier and you got your three little ones in the van and you've already taken your stuff on. You're getting ready to go for six, seven months and they're dropping you off. And I would try not to look back. They would drop me off and I'd start walking down the pier and they would drive away and I would look back and see them going off and all I could do to see was my ship. Those first couple days when you just left your home port and were going on deployment, those were miserable times. Nobody was happy. Everybody was miserable. We were away from our family and we're getting... That's why what happens when you first get underway and you start your Atlantic, your transatlantic uh, 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 crossing is we're so busy. It's almost nearly round-the-clock training, round-the-clock activities. It's to get us focused on mission and to kind of wean us from what we just left behind. And so as you go over there and you're doing this, and we always had, uh, we had it on, on a lot of my ships, we had it on the mess decks. We had the calendar of the whole time of, the, of our deployment. We're to, to say that uh, we are leaving tomorrow. We're leaving you know, on June 26th, we're leaving Newport, and we're headed to the Mediterranean, and we're headed to the, uh, the Indian Ocean, and we're headed to the, uh, the, the North Arabian Gulf, and that we have all these months, 
And we have the halfway point. It's marked with big, big collars and stuff. The heart. And then, then you get the, the end. And so every day, we would cross off a day on the deployment. And as you got towards the, the halfway point and you started to go down, you could sense that there was, there was a different tone in the ship. And then when you would leave the Mediterranean, you would, you would leave Gibraltar. As soon as you left that, you knew it was over. You knew you were on your way home. And you knew that you had 14 days you were crossing the Atlantic. And the intensity of the homecoming is just indescribable is that you, all you do is picture what it's going to be like. You have forgotten when they dropped you off at the pier. All you're thinking now is they're going to be there on the pier. And you can't wait to get there. You can't wait. And then when you pull into the breakwater and you start to go in and you start, the tugs start to draw you to your pier and you're sitting there and if you're lucky, like I was, to be on the bridge and you could look down and see the pier and see all the hundreds and, and thousands of, of family members on the pier waiting for us with all their signs and all their things like that. You know, there could have been 10,000 people on that pier. I was looking for one. I was looking for one. And the three little ones too that was, were there, but... The point I want to get by that lengthy illustration is the intensity of the guys on the ship to go home was such that no one hardly slept. Everyone was in a good mood. We couldn't wait to get there. The psalmist has this intensity about his God. He says, I yearn for you. I'm waiting on you. My soul waits for you. My soul yearns for you. Friends, that's what God wants to do in the school of waiting is he wants to intensify our yearning for him. And as you grow weary in the waiting, as we grew weary on those months of deployment, you could always look to the end. You could always look and see the reward. And so the psalmist then would reveal to us, Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. In his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord. The intensity of the double repetition shows us that waiting intensifies desire for God. And notice what else, verse 5. Here's the second lesson that we will learn in waiting if we respond well. And that waiting develops trust in God's word. Waiting develops trust in God's word. Now, when you read the word hope, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope, what is implied there is trust as well. Trust and hope. They're they're mixed together. But the waiting needs something to anchor itself on. Is that we were waiting on the ship because we knew where we were going. We were going home. Here the psalmist says, I wait for you, Lord. My soul waits for you. And what does he do? He points himself to where the waiting will be sustained, and that is in his word. Because what do we have in God's word? We have promises. We have promises that we are able to cling to in the waiting. And that is one of the designs that God has for us in the school of waiting. He wants us to rely upon his word. He wants to wean us from feelings. He wants to wean us from emotional reliance upon him. He wants us to trust his word. And so what does waiting do? It drives you to the word. You have nowhere else to go. Where else are you going to go? I mean, when you're waiting on God to reveal himself to you, how does he reveal himself? He reveals himself through his word. Psalm 119, verse 25, the psalmist says, My soul clings to the dust. 
Give me life according to your word. Psalm 119, 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. In both cases, we find that the psalmist in Psalm 119 is feeling the weight, the weightiness of his own frailty, of his own mortality, the weightiness of, of heavy burdens upon his soul. And he says to the Lord, strengthen me according to your word, according to your promise. Friends, if we didn't have the word of God, we have no substance in which to wait on. We have nothing. Where do you run to in times of sorrow? Where do you go to in times of waiting? You go to the promise. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes or no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no. But in Christ, it's always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why through, it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Friends, you have been through a lot in, in your life. All of you have. And you're going to go through more. And the anchor of your soul in times of waiting is the sure promise of God. And let me, let me encourage you to this end. If you're in a school of waiting right now for God to do something or for Him to reveal Himself to you, look back at other times that you've been in the school of waiting and what has He done? He's proven His faithfulness. He's proven His promises are true. And he will continue to do so. All of you, have, uh, I'm sure, have read Pilgrim's Progress. If you haven't, uh, please do so. In Bunyan's great allegory, um, it, it talks about how Christian decided to leave the main highway. Uh, he went to try to find uh, another way, bypass Meadow. Uh, well, what happens is that him and Hopeful, they get off the beaten pass and they end up into the territory of giant despair. And giant despair locks him up in Doubting Castle. And they're languishing in Doubting Castle. He threatens that he's going to kill them. He's going to destroy them. Well, for the time, it seemed as if despair had fully conquered Christian. And then, hopeful, his companion, he reminds him before of previous victories. And this is how the story went. So it came about on that Saturday, about midnight, they begin to pray. And they continued in prayer until almost morning. Now, a little before it was day, good Christian, as one half amazed, broke out in passionate speech. What a fool am I to be lying in this stinking dungeon when I might as well be at liberty. I have a key, a key in my bosom. It's called promise that I am persuaded will open the lock in any of Downing Castle's doors. Then said Hopeful, that is good news, brother. That is good news indeed. Pluck it out of thy bosom and try it. And sure enough, the key of promise unlocked the doors to Doubting Castle. And they were free. They were free. Friends, when you're in the school of waiting, God is designing to teach you how to use the key of promise. How to rely upon the key of promise. To hold true to His trustworthy promises. And, and don't put a timeline on him fulfilling the promise. Learn to rejoice in the school of waiting like this morning we saw rejoicing in the school of suffering. Rejoice in the school of waiting because the promise is sure. The fulfillment is sure. The timing is up to the promise, sir. It's not up to us who receive the promise. So then what do we learn in the school of waiting? We learn, number one, that God intensifies our desire for him. 
is you just want, want him, and he will test that. The school of waiting is to intensify and test your desire for God. Secondly, uh, the school of waiting develops trust in God's word. It drives us to the promise, to hold cling to the prom- to hold to the promise. And then we see in verse 6, waiting develops spiritual discipline. Waiting develops spiritual discipline. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. For my, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Twice did he would mention uh, the, the person of the watchman. It could have been the Levites early in the morning at the, at, at watching over the preparation for temple worship. But whatever it is, what we have here is that a person on watch is required to exercise discipline, spiritual discipline. My, uh, my main job in the Navy was just that, being a watchman. And it was, uh, at times, extremely difficult because it requires a vigilance. It requires a watchfulness, a, 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 a attention to detail that you're not allowed to ever, ever uh, loosen whether it be at sea or whether it be in port. And I'll mention more of that in the very end. But I want to give you, give you three things here about the spiritual discipline that um, waiting will develop in you. The first one is this, that waiting develops the spiritual discipline necessary for character formation. Character formation. Is that in the period of waiting, when you're exercising spiritual discipline in order for God to come and reveal himself to you, do you know what you're learning you're learning what I would argue is the second most important virtue in the Christian experience. And that is what James would say in chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces patience or endurance. Suffering and waiting are designed to teach you the two most necessary virtues in all the Christian life, and that is humility and patience. Those two are the foundational virtues of all spiritual growth is humility and patience. And so waiting develops within us the spiritual discipline of character forming and in particular patience. Secondly, waiting develops the spiritual discipline of prayer. What is the psalmist doing in Psalm 130? He's praying. You want to learn how to pray? Pray out of the depths. You want to learn how to pray? Let God put you in the school of waiting is that you're going to find yourself just really learning how to pray. It won't be the, 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 the mechanical prayers of, uh, of, of that we often do. This will be real prayer because you'll be praying out of the depths of your soul. And so waiting develops the spiritual discipline of prayer because in the school of waiting is also, as I mentioned, the school of watching. Is you've got to watch. What are you watching for? You're watching for the Lord. You're watching for, you know, for, for His coming. His coming to the revelation of your soul. Jesus in Gethsemane. He asked Peter and the two sons of Zebedee to go with him to watch. To wait with him. He says to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed. Saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch or wait with me one hour? What 
watch and wait and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Waiting develops the spiritual discipline of character-forming patience, and waiting develops the spiritual discipline of prayer. Because prayer is what will sustain you as you anchor your prayers in word-based promises. Let's look at the third one. And turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Two more and we'll be done. Two more. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Waiting puts us in a position to exercise faith. Waiting develops the spiritual discipline of exercising faith. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, let's, let's pick it up a little bit before what I have here in my notes. 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse, let's go back to verse 2. This is a good church. This is a good church that's known for its labor of love, its work of faith, and its steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. And I want you to know how Paul commends these people. And what you see here is faith at work. When he would commend them in verse 3, the work of faith and the labor of love, he would expound on those in verses 4 through 10. And I want you to know how it ends on the spiritual discipline of waiting. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentoring you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. Now, he is commending them for their genuine conversion in verses 2 through 5. Now, look at verses 6 through 10, and you're going to see the fruit of their conversion. This is faith at work. This is faith in action. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. So note two things. One, they were imitators of the apostles. They were imitators of the Lord. Secondly, they became examples to all other believers. Thirdly, for, from you, from, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you, but your faith in God is going forth everywhere. So we find that this is a live church. They've got all kinds of exercising of the faith going on. Genuinely converted. They're imitators of the faith. They're examples to other believers. They're sounding forth the truth of the gospel. And then verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, a life of repentance. And notice verse 10, Paul commends them for what? The very thing that Psalm 130 is commending us to do, is to wait. And what are they waiting on? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so he doesn't separate waiting from the other activities of the faith. He says, and to wait. So they're imitators. They are examples. They are sharing the gospel. They are a life of repentance. In addition to all those exercises of faith, they are actively waiting for the second coming of Christ. So how do do I know if I'm waiting on the Lord? 
it will be evidenced not only by these very things that we're seeing already tonight, is that there'll be an intensifying desire for God, is that I will develop more trust in the promises of God. I'll have spiritual discipline, and one of those spiritual disciplines will be the exercise of faith that I am waiting with anticipation, actively doing what I know I'm supposed to do in anticipation of the return of the Lord Jesus. Let's go back to Psalm 130, and we're in the last one. This is the last one. Not only does waiting intensify our desire for God, not only will it develop trust in His Word, we will lean on the promises more and more. It develops spiritual discipline, character development, prayer, and an act of faith. But here's the last one. Verse 6. Verse 6. He says, My soul, my soul waits. My soul, here we are. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. So what do we have now? The last one is that waiting will end. Waiting will end. And it will be rewarded. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen uh, for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Twice He's mentioned more than watchmen, now He mentions for the morning. What does that mean? That your time of waiting in the darkness now is going to give way to morning. Dawn is going to occur. Is that you are going to have the light come again. That in those times of perhaps spiritual depression or spiritual darkness, that the morning will come. Weeping may last in, for, the, for the night, but joy comes in the morning. When I was on a ship out of Newport, and um, once a ship is in commission, it's manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, until it's decommissioned. That could be 20, 25 years. Well, we were, we were tied up down here. Um, January, February... In Newport, Narragansett Bay, Pierside, it's cold. And we have a quarterdeck watch. Senior, senior officers, senior enlisted, they stand quarterdeck watches. They're the first person uh, that has ac- gives access to the ship to brow the ship. You've seen them tied up before. And so you're standing there and you have a watch team. Um, in January and February, the worst watches to have are the midnight, the four-hour watches, midnight to four in the morning and four to eight in the morning. Because when you get off of those watches, you have to go to work. And so I remember those four to eight watches. I would go up there at 345, you assume the watch. Go up there and you check the weather, and it's 15 degrees, and there's 25-mile-an-hour wind coming up Narragansett Bay. And you have your Navy peacoat on, and you're standing there, and you're, not, you're outside. And you're outside now for four-hour watch. And you're standing there. And I can tell you, Psalm 130 is pretty special. You long for the morning. You long for the morning when you're able to get that hot cup of coffee, to get near a heater. The psalmist is saying that in, this, in the midst of my waiting, in the midst of the darkness often associated with waiting, morning is coming. There'll be a time when the darkness will be gone. And that the sun will rise on your soul. The S-O-N will rise on your soul. And your times of waiting will be over. There's an interesting story. I come across this. It was, um, 
It came from something called the Biblical, Biblical Museum of 1872. A very interesting illustration. In the year 1830, on the night preceding the 1st of August, I don't know why they didn't just say July, but preceding the 1st of August, the day the slaves in, the, in our western Indian colonies were to come into possession of the freedom promised them, many of them were told, and they never went to bed at all. They knew the next day was going to be their declaration of freedom. Thousands and tens of thousands of them assembled in their places of worship all through the night, engaging in devotional duties and singing praises to God, waiting for the dawn, waiting for the streak of the light of the morning, because they knew that when sun came up, they were free men. They were no longer slaves. Some of them, during the night, they went to the high hills so that they would see the dawn approaching, and they would shout down to the village that that dawn was approaching, freedom was coming. And it says that they came down into the valley, and the dawn of that day was beginning to happen. They no longer were going to be slaves. They were going to be men who were free, made in the image of God to worship Him forevermore, and they rejoiced that the morning was coming. And friends, in our waiting, when God does it to us to intensify our desire for Him, to develop our trust in His Word, to do the spiritual sweat of spiritual discipline, of prayer, and of watching. It's going to end someday. Morning is going to come. And like the psalmist, we can cry out, Yes, I watched for you. I watched for you for the morning, for the dawning of the morning. And there'll be that great day when eternal morning will come. When the sky will open up and the Lord Jesus will appear. And we'll be forever, ever out of the school of suffering and the school of waiting. As it has done its good work in us in this life in preparation for the next life when neither will be necessary. As we enjoy the presence of the living God forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the instruction of your book. and Thank you that you are a God who calls us to wait and forgive us when we are impatient. Forgive us when we would ask for instantaneous results or even you to appear instantaneously and we're not very good at waiting. We thank you for justifying grace. We thank you that even in our impatience it doesn't change our standing with you and May we learn to grow more and more um, in the character of the Lord Jesus as we're called to wait. We thank you for this psalm. We thank you for its power. And Lord, may it instill within us not only this anticipation of his coming, but an intense desire for him till he does come. Father, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you for this Lord's day. We thank you for the family of God and for us being together. In Jesus' name, amen.